This week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, sponsored by Into the AM. In between session storytelling is a great idea on paper. The monk, now officially the most liked reworked class. Stop clicking on anything that has a giant. I speak for the people, the common <laughs> folk. You know what's got to be weird is to not have to come up with a fake thing that looks like a beholder. You can just use a beholder. Nobody owns RPGs. Wizards of the Coast would want to sell off arguably their primary asset. I love having you on the show, Teos. You have such <laughs> well thought out opinions. Unearthed Arcana number eight was apparently the last one. We're free. It's over. It's over. We did it. The end of an era. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the realms. That's right. This is episode one, two, three, not the third, the 123rd episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. That's right. My name is Ben Byrne. If you've never listened before, joined by Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, and we have broken the glass on our emergency Mastering Dungeons host, and brought in Teos Abadia. Thank you so much for joining us, Teos, last minute as well on this episode. Uh, and I have to ask, if uh, this question coming in from Michael J. Pastor, if there are any rules that you've seen in the 5.5e Unearthed Arcana updates so far, which of them are you excited to play with in your game in a, in a permanent fashion uh, once those new rules hit? Mm, mm. Well, I am so excited to work with those new uh, monster and encounter building guidelines that they've given us. Oh, I guess they haven't <laughs> given us those yet, but when they do, I'm going to be so excited about working with them. I can't wait to see them. That, that's my answer. It, it does sound from what they've described so far, very war gamey in terms of like you have points to spend. And once you spend those points, mm. that's your encounter. I was like, okay, I'm there. I know exactly what to do. Um, I'm curious how they're going to be assigning those points, though. Like, what constitutes yeah. a, a higher score for a different monster? Some sort of challenge rating, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the voice of James Hake uh, jumping in. James Hake, what about yourself? What is what, what's something that you're excited for? I'm right now playing the playtest druid in a 5e campaign right now. And I'm having the a lovely one? time with it. Yes, yes. The most recent one. I like mm -hmm. it a lot. I like... Um, I like that I have a familiar, a wild companion. I like that that familiar has its own stat block, though it does come with the sort of fiddliness that those sort of mutable Tasha's Cauldron stat blocks have, which I'm sure will be an issue that's ameliorated by D&D Beyond automating that sort of thing for me once it's ready. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm... So I'm playing a, a bog standard circle of the land druid in that one, but I'm really excited for the new circle of the sea druid, right? Every player's handbook class is going to get four subclasses. So druid will have land, moon, stars, and sea. And I'm really excited for it for an oceanic druid. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, what about yourself? Look, I don't, I don't know if it's even still existing in this form, but I'm still mostly enamored with the exhaustion that they introduced very early Me on. Me too. Me it's, too. I just, it's so easy to plug and play. It's its so um, classy and simple in the way that it is implemented that I can just, and, and it's its its like a gradual, you know, frog in a pot situation 
for your players, which means that I can get away with adding exhaustion elements to my traps and my monsters more often without people accusing me of trying to kill them. So uh, I think that's great. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I also think that those mechanics don't cause players to disengage from the game as much. You know, once you have disadvantage on checks, a lot of players tend to just be like, oh, all right, somebody else make this check. I don't, you yeah. know, I'm, I got disadvantage. Whether it's that negative one, negative two is is a penalty, but it's not enough to make players go like, oh, it's not worth me making the check anymore, you know, especially yeah. because that can be uh, ameliorated with things, I think that's used that word correctly, uh, with things like guidance or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, to, to try and or getting advantage. Yeah. Um, to try and Plus, I mean, I'm usually not a fan of a lot of floating modifiers, but for me, if it's something that you're right, if you're tracking it on your sheet, like you're tracking hit points or whatever, it's mm. it's as easy as any kind of subtraction to just mm-hmm. look at your sheet and go, well, minus four. Yes. No, I, I agree completely. I don't think they've kept it in the uh, more recent uh, packets, but it is something... That may be kept in some capacity somewhere, maybe. It'll be kept alive in our hearts. <laughs> yes, yeah, if nothing else. <laughs> they can't stop the the oral storytelling nature of tabletop RPGs. No, nobody owns RPGs. Um, <laughs> uh, I tell you, I, I'm genuinely, I had a look at, at them this morning. I had to refresh myself on Playtest Packet 8 uh, a little bit. But I am, uh, and this might sound a little counterintuitive at first, Looking forward to the new Cure Wounds and the new Healing Word doing 2D8 and 2D4 respectively. But the reason is because I think that will play better with the grim hollow rest mechanics of having those rests really extended out. Uh, You get more out of those spell slots. And what we've found in our games is that while those uh, extended out rest mechanics do work to stop the party from supernovaing every encounter and it feels... You know, each individual day feels tougher um, than necessarily if they were getting everything back at the end of every day. But certain classes like the cleric that really rely on those spell slots and don't get them back for two or three days really feel themselves um, starving for spell slots at the end of, you know, the the, the adventuring period because um, their healing is, is a precious resource. And I think that 2D8, 2D4 will just do a little bit better in making each individual casting of the spell punch a bit harder so that they feel like they're not spending their their spell slots uh, so quickly, you know, needing to heal every turn of a combat. I think it's really neat you mentioned that, Ben, because I had a very similar experience in my my playtest game uh, just a couple of days ago where land druids have had their sort of like arcane recovery equivalent moved way later to like sixth level. And so I was hurting for spell slots. But the party paladin was about to go down like five hit points left surrounded by goons. And I was like, okay, I'll have my raven deliver a cure wounds. And I, it, like, maybe it'll do something because I have like one, two, two spell slots left and here's one of them. And the party was mm-hmm. like, hey, don't, remember, don't forget, it's doubled now. And so I drop a second level cure wounds and I heal like 25 hit points. And it's the best I've ever felt using a spell slot on a healing spell. I find that interesting. And I'm curious, I don't know if you've seen uh, Tom Dunn. He, he's, he's a guy we, we've mentioned uh, this week on our show. Um, and Tom Dunn does a blog where he breaks down the math between behind monsters, behind encounters, and, it, and it's super geeky stuff. Like, like, you know, get ready to see things that make your physics textbook look easy. And I'd be really curious if he would look into kind of the math of healing because I think there's a real game design question of whether you want 
you're healing, to what extent do you want the, the kind of hit point bars to be going up and down during a battle? And what does that mean for the longevity of the battle? If we say, you know, if D&D tells us, oh, we're, we're designing so that we have uh, a, you know, three to four round encounter, how many hit points should I be getting back for that to feel challenging and good, right? Third edition mm. would do things where um, the first round of combat, a monster might beat the snot out of you and your hit points would go all the way down. And then someone would kind of just heal you for a little bit or cast the heal spell. <laughs> and then, then, and that was a certain type of play with a very kind of knife's edge up and down kind of thing. And fifth edition has made you sort of more indestructible to where I don't know if you need that much healing, even if it, I agree it feels good, but I don't know if you need it. And so I'm curious what someone like Tom Dunn would say if they were break down that math. What what should mathematically what should our healing be? Well, maybe it's just the way I design encounters because I do design them to be a little bit more dangerous than than I think typical GMs might. But at the same time, that's not to my credit because I want the adventuring day to last for longer without needing to burn through those resources. So some of the indestructibility of um, players uh, or, or characters, more more accurately, I wonder how much of that is the fact that. You know, the cleric is able to just slam out those those spell slots. The cleric is able to cast that healing word or the bard cast that healing word to get the barbarian back into battle because, as, uh, you know, Dale, I think, has said a couple of times in the last few episodes, uh, the one hit point is the only hit point that, that really matters, you know, the last one. That's in a Bria Iyengar quote, just, just um, so that people know. <laughs> <laughs> just so it's attributed. You know, the, what I found is, yeah, it can be hard to put players down, but it's usually because the cleric is burning through those spell slots, you know, every other turn. And once those spell slots are gone, it's kind of hard to to keep party members up. But then that could also be my uh, encounter design where I'm just like constantly using monsters that do big hits. Um, where if you don't have more than 10 hit points, you're in trouble um, uh, at any one time. Uh, speaking of the playtest packet, you will be happy to know that Unearthed Arcana number eight was apparently the last one uh, for the Woo-hoo. 2024 uh, Player's Guide. It's over. It's over. We did it. We're the free. end of an era. <laughs> the Monk now officially the most liked reworked class, uh, scoring 90% approval according to those that were doing the surveys. Uh, the Barbarian achieving over 80%, the Druid over 70%. Um, and uh, healing spells. I've just made a personal note here for myself. Over eighty percent approval. Again, I'm curious to the to the confirmation bias of the sort of people that are doing these surveys. And generally, what has what has had higher satisfaction scores has been stronger PCs. It uh, is also interesting part. seeing such positive responses so late in the playtest stuff compared to early on. And I can't help but wonder how much of that is general population dropping off on their interest in looking in on the playtests and giving feedback versus someone who's a diehard monk player or, you know, a, you know, they, they come in and they go, ah, yes, now it is my time and uh, mm-hmm. very happy. But having said that, I remember my reaction to the stuff in this playtest packet. I don't remember any of what it actually said. So I'm happy for the monk players, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the other thing that's evolved largely, I remember we were very critical uh, on this podcast about the Druid, not in Playtest mm-hmm. Packet 8, but the previous the iteration one, yeah. where you could change into Animal of the Land, Animal of the Sky, whatever it happened to be. That's Vomitous Mass, <laughs> as James called it. That's a Princess Bride quote. we got to give a tributation <laughs> to that one as well. 
Whether it's this this time around, uh, you know, they've kind of fixed the issues with the druid having sort of endless hit points in the way that you get temporary hit points, but you don't, you know, you can't just keep wild shaping to keep yourself, um, you know, at 50 plus hit points to what it would normal, normally be if you turn into a bear or something. And yet at the same time, as you mentioned before, Dale, the summoning spells, uh, I believe they want to keep the bespoke kind of, this is the stat block you're using for this spell, I assume largely to stop the GM needing to flick through the the monster manual or whatever to find the stat block. So it is largely in the player's control. So it, it seems like uh, the right tool for the right purpose. And I kind of like that in the design, even if it is a little lopsided and not really symmetrical in in all used cases. Yeah, no, I get that. I, the, I think the heart of the concept has always been something that I'm pro- uh, I sure. have not necessarily loved the implementations, but again, I don't remote. I, I I feel like I was happier about the druid in the playtest eight. There's nothing in there that I read and I go, "Oh, awesome! I want to do that." You know, mm. like I don't look at this druid and go, "Oh, I want to turn into an animal of the land." You know, <laughs> I I see the direction they've gone. I don't love it. I don't remember. It was so <laughs> long ago. Don't worry, Dale. I'll be happy for you. I like the current druid a lot. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it um, is good to see some of the folks who run channels, like Treant Monk, for example, saying that that you know they like the current version uh, and they've spoken out about it a lot. So I, I think that for the invested player, the player that that likes to really look at all the crunch of it and how it all comes together, I, I don't doubt that these numbers are pretty representative. What, I, what I'd be curious about is if you go further outside of the, the normal kind of Twitter, YouTube uh, catch basin, the bubble. what would you find, right? If you, if you hmm. go to your local gaming store, to the random house that's running a game, those can be really different folks. And it doesn't seem like it. You know, we all kind of walk around like this in our communities. But, but when, you, when I've been stranded in some town and I walk into a gaming store, folks are different. From, from across the country, across the world as to what they like and, and, and how much D&D they see and what kind of things they see. And that's where I'd like to, to me, that's the proof of whether a game really has legs is whether it really has that kind of wide appeal. 5e had that kind of wide appeal. Um, does 2024 have that wide appeal? I don't know. And I don't think we will know. Like we're just not reaching out to a diverse enough group. So, you know, it's, it, it, it should be a fun game mechanically for people who like the kind of mechanical interaction um what does it do beyond that i'm not sure that we'll know but but hopefully it's good because it's not like the DD designers don't look into those things but but i worry about mm. that bias what do you when you look at the um you, you mentioned before and they very briefly touched on the the latest video i think it's on the dungeons and dragons youtube channel yeah. but it's so confusing as to what video goes on w- those two channels mm-hmm. um what do you what are you hoping for from the gm side of things um uh Teos? in terms of encounter building or even like dungeon building or that sort of thing. I mean, CR is a nightmare, right? We, and it's interesting to now have Mike Merles on the outside to where he can talk a bit about, you know, how they rushed it. Um, mm. And it's pretty late in the game. So maybe we're rushing it again is, is my worry. You know, I don't know, but, but I just, it feels like we're still, you know, internally play testing CR. And I, I think that that's something that they could have started working on two years ago, you know, because the math is the math and one could easily be have been looking at it for a long time in the background Honestly, with having that be a major started, underpinning the game 
five years ago. Like, sure. Yeah. I mean, we've had a long, long time and, and, and I, and I'm not saying it's easy cause it's not, it is hard, right? These kinds of things mm-hmm. are hard. Uh, I, I love seeing kind of the things that Mike Merles is talking about. He's trying to wrestle with it and you couldn't be much closer than, than he has been, right? Having been one of the, the folks coming up with it and working with, you know, the, the main individuals that really designed it. Um, but you know, can they really turn that, that CR and counter building piece around or at least create a system that ple- pleases enough folks. Because clearly people will just be like, hey, I pick some monsters and I throw them at them. Today, it's a beholder and two goblins. Have fun. You know, and, and they, <laughs> they do stuff. And that's totally cool, right, for folks to do that. Other people really want the math of the game to work, uh, including designers like myself who want to be able to design an encounter that uses the game's math and plays by those rules and has a great outcome. And, mm-hmm. and the system doesn't really pull that off. So is this going to be a back of the envelope type math that's good enough or are we fixing things? And, and I, don't, I don't know, you know, well, we'll, we'll, I, we'll I think see. this really gets to what you were bringing up earlier, Teos, about the, the broader population of people playing D&D, because I think at the end of the day, most of the, the most important thing from that perspective for basically any subsystem in this rule set is ease of use. It's mm-hmm. not fidelity to the math it's ease of use and uh, i i think the current challenge rating system kind of fails on both counts right it's arcane enough that it doesn't really feel intuitive or easy to use and it still doesn't produce you a very accurate result (laughs) so i i I would be very happy to see a a encounter balancing system that is more or less as good as it is now but feels lightning quick to throw together um, but yeah. if this new version of the game is going to be highly supported by D and D beyond and their encounter building tools and all of that, like I hope things like the new customizable stat blocks in the Tasha style that we're going to see of which there are now many, uh, right. I, I hope that the encounter builder has a very robust system behind it that, you know, even if it requires us to use a computer system, kind of in the way the fourth edition required us to use a computer system for many of its options. Uh, so many more of us now are used to playing D&D with computerized backing that I don't think it will be nearly as hard a pill to swallow now as it was in 2008 or so. I also think it's worth mentioning, you know, we talk about this sort of ease of use. And I think a lot of a lot of what I'm looking for with the encounter building is how intuitive is it for a new DM? If we want to mm. be making new DMs, you know, the number of uh, friends of mine who've played D&D who took the step out, they were running a one shot and they've gotten in contact with me for help with encounter building. And I helped them, but I helped them in my, you know, wibbly wobbly way where I'm like, okay, well, what I would do is, you know, maybe we want it to feel like, and I'm not a very helpful person in that regard, right? Because I like to feel it out and do my thing. But I think a lot of people who are running the game for the first time just want an answer. They just want an answer. They just want to be able to like go, oh, this is the formula plug and play and to have it more or less work. And I, whether or not current challenge rating is balanced, which it's not, um, (laughs) whether or not it is, I think a big factor is, um, how easy is it to just jump in and understand and put it together? Because a lot of, a lot of players turn first time DMs. It's kind of hard to figure out 
how it works. <laughs> you yeah. know, even if you yeah. read it, it's like, okay, so there's the, so we're averaging out the party level and then we have to piece it together. But then also the number of combatants is going to have an, you know, like all those layers to it, uh, not the most intuitive. So that's, that's the kind of thing yeah. I'm kind of looking out for in an encounter. You're, you're both absolutely spot on. Like well, what's, what's the point of, of all that hard math? If at the end you don't get an exact result anyway, and then go back and ask the question, what is it that DMs really want, right? And, and when I was working on Forge of Foes with Scott Fitzgerald Gray, here comes the plug, Scott Fitzgerald Gray <laughs> and Mike Shea, um, we, we looked at, okay, um, what is it that, that generally a DM is trying to do? And, a, a, you know, we thought, well, a GM is generally trying to say like, you know what I want? I want one really powerful boss, a solo monster, or I want a boss and two minions, two underlings, or I want a squad of six with a sort of leader type. And so that's what we did is say like, well, if you have a party of X players and it's at X level, then here's what that combination is, right? A boss is CR blah, a boss plus two lieutenants is CRs A and B, right? And work out those things. And it's just a table, right? And it takes you two seconds to look it up because that's actually the use case. And I, I think D&D could really benefit from looking at that use case. And maybe this point system is fast enough to get you in between. But it's worth looking at the kind of questions that, that DMs are really asking and what they need. What I hear resoundingly is two things. One is, it's hard to run through this process, so I don't. And mm. two is, my players make mincemeat of everything I throw at them. And I mm. think both of those would really be worth addressing by whatever the system is. They don't all have to be math answers. It can be advice, but somehow speak to those problems of, of yeah, especially the players running rampant through your monsters like that's dissatisfying to a dm when they're trying to provide a fun challenge yes i do remember the early days of sitting there with that page open in the dmg it was like that and magic items were the two pages i used going like all right so now i have to write the you know you had to have a notebook there to figure it out because <laughs> you can't just do it from the yeah. the page itself um but yeah look i, I mean i'm hopeful for the, this point system because that sounds easy in theory if it works uh, speaking, you know, and this is my own bias going into this, as someone who's been running D&D for a few years now, I don't mind if it's not uh, 100% accurate on like creating a balanced encounter as long as I can get the feel for it because uh, I've said before, encounter building in, in 5e is kind of for me like cooking, but I don't measure everything with cups and spoons. I just kind of, you know, oh, that's about enough salt and throw that in. Goblin to taste. Yeah, exactly. Just minions <laughs> to taste, you know, minion bay, uh, sprinkling them on. <laughs> but yes, we will have to wait, unfortunately, a little bit longer uh, to see how these rules ultimately pan out. Because speaking of 2024 D&D, it's not coming in May. Um, uh, which I think we all kind of knew. That date that was posted at PAX Unplugged uh, got very quickly yanked offline uh, after the Wizards Twitter account tweeted it, or the D&D account perhaps it was, uh, tweeted it out. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Crawford has confirmed that they will still be working on the books themselves in May and that we will likely not see a release uh, before summer. He didn't say not during summer, though. So there's a whole three months. If if I may be so bold, I will attempt to guess the exact day. Oh, five E will be dropped. This is like a magic trick. When, when does Gen Con start? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's probably a, that's probably a better guess. No, my my guess, my exact guess, July fifteenth, twenty twenty four, the ten year okay. anniversary of the five E starter set. 
Oh, yeah. that's that's my guess. Solid, solid. That's 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 a great guess. But legitimately, I think Teos' Gen Con answer might be more correct than that. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't have to be these days, but it, but it's sort of it would be a big change if it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And, and and there's sort of two things, right? One is can you have it at Gen Con, and the other is what's really the street date. And so. I think that when I was at Gen Con in 2014, DMing for like doing various things for Baldman Games and, and, and Wizards, I think I got a copy of every book, even mm. though they technically weren't out because they were, you know, it was a rolling release as usual where the player's handbook comes sure. up first. Or maybe I got them. I think I didn't get the DMG, but I got the monster manual for sure at Gen Con. And so that's often what can happen, right? Is that the book is out there so you can show it off and you can maybe have a few copies in fans' hands as sort of early wet everybody's appetites, hold it up at the seminars. But then the street day could be, you know, late August or something like that. But I mean, take all the time you need wizards. You want another three years? I'm good with that too. Like whatever, get it right. Because if you want this edition to last another 10 years or whatever, boy, put some, put, put all the effort you need, you know, get it, get it right. It's mm-hmm. that tension again between it's a great marketing decision to release on a significant symbolic date, to, to release in the middle of summer in the US, to release during all these conventions. All of those are, are great marketing choices, but are they the best choice for the game? <laughs> you know? Right. I have seen so many video games get rushed to launch because their release date was planned for an anniversary day so yeah. many times, and it never works out well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm uh, Jeremy Crawford said the date was never going to be May. I'm a bit suspect of that specific statement. I feel like <laughs> who made that graphic? How did the tweet happen? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> my my understanding is it was a copy paste from one of the you know adventures or supplements or something like that. Like one of them right. is May, ah. and then the template got the image behind mm. it for every single you know they were kind of putting in the images and left the frame of it or whatever, and so the. The date is true for one this product is- that isn't any core book. It's like, you know, some adventure <laughs> or something. And and that, you know, got messed up. Probably this they didn't want to Laura communicate Zipsum the date for the style adventure. templates are yeah. important <laughs> and valuable. Yeah. And, and I you also, know, bless uh, the folks who are trying to do that work, right? Because you're trying to like probably do it on a phone from the floor of somewhere and it's not easy. So mistakes happen. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we we who are on the internets should uh, you know be lenient and and forgiving of all these kinds of things because at the end of it, as a human, just trying to make it work like the rest of us, and it's not <laughs> going to be perfect. It doesn't matter if you're an enormous corporation, some person trying to quickly use a template to get that info out now for you. Uh, it, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, it's easy to assume that like that date went up there and then some executive saw it and was like, oh, get that off, get that. But it's equally likely it was the same person who hit post, looked at it like three minutes later to see what the engagement was and then went, oh, no, uh, and, uh-huh. and yanked it off themselves. So, um, yeah, who, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I, my, my prediction is that I, I think uh, players handbook will be probably early early what am i trying to say here like q3 probably mid q3 early back half of the year monster manual For like in, in september in october the biz, 
What does that mean? <laughs> Quarter three of the year, July, August, September. So Thank players' you. handbook like July, August. I uh, speak for the people, <laughs> the common folk. Monster Manual October based on Halloween. I reckon they're, they're, there's some great marketing kind of uh, split that they could do there. And then Dungeon Master's Guide for Christmas for the, the best Christmas present any GM wants is the new Dungeon Master's Guide. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. Casliber? Uh, Casliber? Kasslubber in chat uh, is talking about the kind of art that we'll get on the books. What's everyone's predictions for what Mm. art is going to be on the cover of each book? Mm. Oh, on the cover of, yeah, okay. Because they did say the dwarf uh, was the, that was the class art, not the the cover art. You know what's got to be weird is to not have to come up with a fake thing that looks like a beholder. You can just use a beholder. (laughs) Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody has a beholder on their monster manual these days, and but it's uh, you know it's a where is a a beholder. You know what? Beholder. I'm gonna go way out there. I'm sick else. of seeing beholders on any of the books. I I don't care about beholders. Give me a dragon. Put a dragon on the cover of the book. <laughs> Isn't oh, it that's a good prediction that the name of the game is Dungeons and Dragons? Enough. One of the 2014 core books has a dragon mm-hmm. on the front. The closest we get is a giant wearing a dragon skin cloak. Like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's something to aspire to. Can you get a dragon cloak? Speaking of getting sick clothes, uh, this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast has a sponsor. <laughs> Uh, that's right. We've made it. We've made that it. That was a good segue. Yeah, I thank you. Just teed me up for that one and out of the park. For folks that don't know, uh, I am currently wearing uh, a shirt from Into the AM, who are sponsoring this week's episode. Uh, they didn't give me any ad copy to read, so I'm just going to say their shirts are cool. Uh, they've got graphic tees. I like to express myself. Those that have been watching the Lawcast for a while know I'm generally wearing some kind of nerd shirt, whether it's like God of War or Overwatch or something like that. Uh, and these are cool kind of, you know, art graphic tees. they have uh, got their own team of artists that create these shirts. And they're all really cool. Uh, I'm wearing one. Dale, what was mine called? I couldn't remember. You, you went and looked wait, at it. I've got it here. I've got it you, here. Yeah. It's right here. Let me just show it's it off. I'm going to stand out. Tranquil up and, Ascent Tree. And don't Look you feel at those so tranquil? Stairs. Right? The stairs going up. You could ascend them with tranquility. Feels very mystical. Feels very um, adventure like, you know. Uh, the other one, they sent Perfect a couple. Perfect for the monk in your life. Yeah. Hey! Hey, there you go. They sent a couple. The other one was like a, a space astronaut falling, which was pretty cool as well. Um, so they had you a can couple c- cool astronauts. I'm not going to lie about it. Their, astro- their, their astronaut game is on. But I guess what, what I would want, I, I would want a discount for being a loyal viewer of this show. That's what I would want. Well, Teos, have I got uh, some info for you? Because if you go to intotheam.com slash ghostfiregaming, all one word, uh, you get a 10% discount. Uh, there's a link in the description uh, as well as in the uh, uh, top comment on this video. And I will also quickly copy and paste it across to the Twitch chat if you're watching this live. Uh, and on top of that, they're also doing, if you want to grab three graphic shirts, uh, you can get them for sixty dollars uh, with the ten percent discount added on top of that. Uh, if you go to into the am dot com slash ghostfire gaming, uh, thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Into the am, um, go grab a shirt. Speaking of selling things, is Dungeons and Dragons being sold uh, to Tencent? No, no. It seems All like right, a low moving price. on. 
<laughs> yeah, that's not enough. Uh, yes, there was internet rumors buzzing around um, about Wizards of the Coast looking to sell. All right, I'm going to level with you all here. This clearly, clearly false piece of information floating around the internet that Wizards of the Coast would want to sell off uh, arguably their primary asset, probably behind Magic the Gathering, I would guess, um, but nevertheless one of their primary assets. One of the main things that made them money uh, during 2023, uh, albeit through the licensing agreement with Baldur's Gate 3, uh, but nevertheless... And yet this story, for at least a day or two, two, three days, took on a life of its own and the story became that Wizards of the Coast was selling D&D, the brand, uh, to Tencent uh, when the truth of the matter is what we can infer from the information we have, which is not a lot, um, they are potentially selling the digital rights for things like video games uh, or giving an exclusive license to Tencent uh, because Tencent are a part owner of uh, Larian Studios, so it would make sense. Tencent also own a lot of other game studios uh, or have part ownership, I would assume, with the other game studios, so it would make sense that they would look to them to make more successful D&D video games. Speaking of that uh, Tencent-Larian connection, I, I want to do a little bit more fact-checking here because I've seen some tweets amidst this say that Tencent is Larian's parent corporation. That's patently false. Tencent has a 30% stake in Larian. And in fact, Larian CEO Sven Vinke has a, a more than 60% share in the company. So Larian remains an independent developer uh, with foreign investment from Tencent. So it mm-hmm. would not even be that sort of situation where Larian must bow to the whims of a, of a megacorp that owns it. There's always not much of a story here, right? The story is that Wizards of the Coast probably want to make more D&D video games based on the success of Baldur's Gate. That makes perfect sense. If I seem um, frustrated, it is the um, disinformation meta that is currently on, on you know, ha- has kind of, I feel like, you know, it's always been there, but ramped up a lot over the last 12 months with the, the outrage meta and the disinformation meta on uh, uh, YouTube uh, and other social media platforms that's kind of driving false narratives. And there were uh, at least one, if not a couple of YouTube channels that kind of, and I don't want to necessarily name names because, hey, I could be wrong, but it seemed like driving this narrative forward through clickbaity, like D&D has been sold, the end of D&D, it's gone again, you know, Wizards of the Coast fumbles again, trying to, you know, and that 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 story just takes on a life of its own uh, and starts getting spread around to the point that wizards themselves felt like they had to get involved and say, all right, all right, all right, that's not happening. Like, that's not a thing that that is actually happening. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting frustrated yeah, with the no, misinformation sure. meta. Yeah, and it's also it's frustrating that, like, you know, this morning some new piece of, of uh, you know, talk came across my YouTube feed and I thought to myself, this seems like rage bait. I don't believe that this will be like true or accurate or have a lot of sources to give, but because of things like this podcast, I feel the need to be informed and to at least like check what they're talking about in case it is some big important thing that I'm supposed to know about. But then the minute you click on it, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you've rewarded it you've told youtube you're gonna click on that yeah, and it just yeah. it just feeds itself 
But but that's what we need to do as a community, right? Is that if we don't want, you know, videos that are trying to exploit us for clicks, then we need to, you know, click on the three dots to the side of it and say, don't show me this anymore, right? And get that off of your feed uh, and stop clicking on anything that has a giant face on it, right? Like it, it, it's no, no, not no, necessary. Unless it's we one do of that. my videos. <laughs> Unless it's one of your videos, then it's okay. Because Dale does good videos. But uh, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's just, I, mean, I thought it was funny. One of the channels on, on this story had to put two shocked faces, right? Like, like I wonder what the... <laughs> <laughs> the mechanism is for escalating you know it. And I, oh, man. And, and I'm YouTube, not. YouTube, actually, I, this could be outdated by now, but this is just a fun fact that thumbnails that have two faces in them do better than thumbnails with <laughs> um, one or three faces yeah, in them. I'm sure. But, but, <laughs> but that's where we, because, you know, the reality of this is, I, mean, I think you can see, you know, you might look on, on, on a channel and, and you can see, well, I don't know what they're going to say about this. And, and But once you've seen a couple of their videos, you know the kind of coverage they're going to give you. And it's up to you to decide whether you want to be, you know, incited into rage and anxiety or whether you want to learn about topics. Right. And, and that's mm. what I like about the Lorecast is that it's a place where you come to learn about topics and, and you get some fun along the way. Right. We, we all have a good time, but but we're not we're not just kind of chucking stuff at a wall to see if it sticks. And, and, and then and then having a mea culpa video to get more clicks. Right. Like we, we, we can do otherwise as a community. It, it, it's very complex, this issue of what large corporations will do, right? Large corporations will sell off a profitable part of their company because it may not be core to what they're trying to do. Hasbro has a giant question as to what they're going to do with the fact that their toys aren't selling well. And it's made mm -hmm. hard in a climate of, of this kind of capitalistic climate because you don't know whether it's a sudden blip and toys are going to totally recover or a kid's going to do nothing but play on phones. Right? Will they ever touch action figures again? Will they ever touch board books and whatever? Is, you know, are they, is that just going to fall by the wayside? It's unclear. You know, is this a post-pandemic thing? Is it a continual thing? Nobody out there knows. I don't care how expert they are because the economies are complicated. And so, but Hasbro has to somehow plot a course of what they do around this toy business that currently is suffering in an environment where it's all about your stock price. So they do things like layoffs, like everybody else has done, because the moment you do a layoff, Wall Street pats you on the back, says, add a boy, and rewards you with higher stock prices, right? <laughs> That's the world we live in. Um, so Hasbro has to come up with plans of what they do. Hopefully, those plans include holding on to D&D &D and building around D&D, &D because that has a lot of potential. But no company has really been able to fulfill that potential around D&D &D so far. Um, 5e has been a success as a game. Has it been an enormous success for Hasbro as a brand? Hard to say. You know, I mean, the, it's tricky around the movie. You can cut out a lot of slack. And I think most people who, who are smart around it do because of the environment, which is a release. You know, it, it did really well compared to Mission Impossible and John Wick. So I guess it's did pretty well, you know, but it's complicated, right? These things are so complicated and they don't just result in a video with a certain face on it. They're, they're, they're unclear, right? And, and so... We'll see. I, we had a question on our show on Mastering Dungeons this week. You know, has Hasbro Wizards been a good steward to D&D? &D? And they have. You know, they've been a good investor in it. They've helped grow it. They've been patient with it. It would be really easy for a company to come along and say, eh, turn it into a card game, see if it sells a bunch, eh, and then shut it down if it doesn't. Mm. That's what some people might do, right? Because that's... It would be very short-sighted, but it's entirely possible. And it's never been that way, right? It's always been overall pretty healthy. So I, I think, 
you know, we'll have to see what happens down the road. It's certainly possible that it could be sold off. Um, I'm sure it's been talked about before and thought about. Any company like that has to think about these kinds of things, but they probably won't. You know, it probably isn't enough. You'd have to find the right kind of buyer. It wouldn't be somebody inside the industry, right? Who has the money? I mean, most companies can't pay for even the D&D Beyond part of it, which would be higher mm-hmm. than the price that was paid before. So it's not going to be inside the industry. So, you know, are you going to get a Disney involved or someone else? It's hard to say. You'd want the right company to come along that's going to really make it worth it so you can get a lot of money from them. And right now there's no clear, you know, people on that side. I wonder what would have happened if someone really wanted to buy D&D in like 2012, right? Because D&D's team at that point was a skeleton crew of maybe 15 people across all departments, right? It was mm-hmm. definitely just Chris Perkins, Jeremy Crawford, and Mike Merles on the design team. It was like only them. Uh, and then a handful of art directors and graphic designers and business people, et cetera. And Hasbro, from what I can glean, was deeply, deeply disappointed by the failures of fourth edition. And basically were just like, well, let's see if they can make us any money at all. Um, and now things, you know, their fortunes have changed immensely. I wonder if there is a world in which that sort of sale would have happened 10 years ago. We may never know. Yeah. Unless 2024 crashes and burns, and then we can see in 10 more years. <laughs> <laughs> it's always tough, right? You, you want to sell when it's worth a lot, but you want to get rid of it when it's doing poorly. And so those things are always <laughs> fighting each other, right? You don't want to sell yeah. it when it's when it's looking really bad to everybody else. And, and clearly, 5th edition was built on, on selling t-shirts, as Sean has said on this show, be- show before. Uh, you know, it was around licenses. It was, it was not around the game itself. And lo and behold, the game was hugely popular and did well in and of itself to the point where folks in other Hasbro departments are being told to listen to D&D on how to be profitable. So it did really well, but, but, uh, but the fundamentals of it still need to go back to somehow capitalizing on the brand nature of it because just printing books is not the business that Hasbro wants to be in or most companies that would want to buy D&D. They want to be in the, we have, you know, just Marvel, right? Think of Marvel. It doesn't have to be that big, but it wants, it, it should feel that way. That's the way most companies that would buy D&D would want it to feel. I love having you on the show, Teos. You have such <laughs> well thought out opinions. I like the rest of us chuckleheads who just kind of no, say no, the well, thing that true occurs at all. to us. I, I watch the show every week. Uh, but we did have, you know, Graham Ward. I was talking to Graham Ward and, and he turned this around and asked a really good question, which is, you know, how could D&D be better stewards of, of the rules themselves, like the mm. products themselves. And that's even another question, right? Whether he kind of asked, you know, the 2024 update, is it, you know, are, are they being good stewards through that, right? Are they, are they kind of doing what, what the, and it, that's complicated too, right? You can't put any single thumbnail on that one either. It's, it's, no. it's a complicated question of whether the UAs are, are good stewardship for D&D. I think overall, yes, but, but I would want the update to be different. And that doesn't mean that I know what I'm talking about on it, right? Like, like it's, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, many, many different people want different things. Sorry, Dow, go ahead. There's been chat in the chat uh, about a comparison between Hasbro and toy sales with um, Mattel and, and you know, the recent success of the Barbie movie, which I think we can probably all agree as much as I love the D&D movie. The Barbie movie was a little bit, it's just a scooch more successful. Um, and whether, whether the success of the Barbie film had an impact on toy sales from Mattel. 
And the answer is yes. Uh, it seems like, yes, there has been a 14% boost in sales of Barbie. But I think that that's interesting to think about as well. Marvel came up during this, this idea of a brand having as kind of a core, like flagship product that they can kind of build around, right? Because I don't know what the hell else Mattel is doing, but as long as Barbie is selling, that's mm-hmm. that's ultimately what matters, Marty right? Mighty Max is Marty Marvel Max. Marvel for a very, very long time has survived on the brand recognition of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Compared to DC, sure. um, Detective Comics, where you've got, you know, this core trio of very successful heroes in Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, you've got one guy kind of holding down the fort for Marvel until the success of like Iron Man is a film. As many um, film YouTubers have said, it's insane that the MCU started on Iron Man, right? It's wild. <laughs> they really were collecting the dregs of the least popular properties because these were the ones that weren't bought out by another film, film business to, to make movies about, right? So you're doing mm-hmm. it without the Fantastic Four, without the X-Men, without Spider-Man. Um, and even then, Spider-Man was the only one who was truly like, had broad worldly recognition. Now, if we look at Hasbro versus Mattel, I've just opened up the Hasbro website and their banner includes, these are the ones that they've included in the banner. They've got Power Rangers, some kind of a dragon. (laughs) (laughs) They've got Play-Doh, which is nice, but not a character. Um, They've got uh, Great Uncle Penny Bags from Monopoly. They've got Peppa Pig, some strange kangaroo, a pegasus with a mohawk, and three uh, animal-themed superheroes I don't recognize. They don't I'm even have Transformers? Sure. They don't even have Transformers what? up there, which is Where's interesting, Optimus right? Because when you look at- That's the one. <laughs> the ones that immediately come to mind for me as well are Power Rangers, uh, Transformers, G.I. Joe, they, they own. But mm-hmm. those things as well, those are nostalgia properties, right? Bobby is timeless, but- we, 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 I just think that we have some work to do. I'm sure that these are beloved, probably the ones that I don't recognize. I'm sure that, you know, millions of kids love these things, but it's, it's not got that, you know, strong core that something like Barbie is. And even, even D and D as, as big as it seems to us, it's not got the brand recognition or pull of Barbie, um, no. Barbara Millicent Rogers, as is her full name, um, lest we forget. Right, so, so I just Dale, it's, you it's are writing the Barbie RPG, right? Oh, <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I would love to read a, a Dale written Barbie RPG. Just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll call it Varvi. We'll no, use in keeping with the rest of the Hasbro properties, uh, I think that Mattel should match, and we should use the. Uh, the Essence 20 system, which is perfect (laughs) and has no flaws. Speaking of things that are perfect and have no flaws, we have emails. Uh, I'm going to throw you under the bus this week, Teos. Do you know the email address Mm -hmm. by which to send emails to the Eldritch Lawcast? Sean Merwin at (laughs) MasteringDungeons.com. No, it is (laughs) podcast at GhostfireGaming.com. Correct. You managed to, you got there. Um... Uh, and a question came in from, from Gethin, uh, emailing in asking about, uh, I wrote best tween session storytelling, but that is a typo between session storytelling. Does your storytelling continue with your players after the session has ended? Does this help with world building slash session prep? 
for example, knowing what the characters want to do next, uh, where they want to go next, who they want to talk to next, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I know that I'm just going back and it's just the worst timing in the world, but someone in chat just brought up My Little Pony and that is Hasbro. So mm-hmm. that's something. Oh, so, get, anyway. those, get those bronies uh, in, uh, in, in, into it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes sometimes i come across much older than i am um james hake what about yourself what about between sessions in between session storytelling is a great idea on paper i remember matt colville once describing your D sessions as your avengers comics and your in-between sessions as your Incredible Hulk or Captain America or Iron Man comics. And I think that's a really cool concept that I've never been able to make work, simply because it takes a lot of time and effort to prep a D&D session, let alone four little mini D&D sessions. Hell, let alone just one if one character has something going on in between the main games. I reject any idea that downtime in game happens in the downtime between games because what happens between adventures is still a fun part of the character storytelling. Um, I've had some interesting times doing like text RP with my players in between sessions where a character in an NPC or something have a little side moment, but that's just fun because me and my friends are writer nerds and we like to do a little bit of asynchronous storytelling in our scraps of free time. I would not recommend that for anyone unless you really like writing uh, because that's what it is. Um, If you wanted to do in between session storytelling, if you're really interested in it, I would recommend uh, looking back into the past for that sort of play by post style and maybe doing something very light, right? You don't have to talk with quotation marks and dialogue and, and stage direction and stuff like that. Maybe just say, to DM, hey, DM would like to hunt for magic item in between session, looking for, you know, maybe you've got a wish list, right? Maybe looking for Gauntlets of Hill Giant Strength, or maybe looking for a new magic weapon. And the GM can provide that and either do it in between as that little bullet point style we're talking about here, or use that to guide their session prep for the beginning of the next session, right? Do some quick downtime in the first hour as you're all kind of joking around and getting the pizza together and clearing off the table and doing all that stuff anyway before everyone has sat down and is really locked in. I feel like this is I, this is the, the question I've been pondering over the most um, because I, as many people probably know by now, my, my history with role play comes from ye olden uh, play-by-post era uh, where it was all quotation marks and stage directions and this is what my character is doing. And when I say that, I, I think a, a lot of people who come to the concept of play-by-post now think of it as D&D, like there is someone prepping the game and, you know, running the whole thing. Um, that it was, it was much less that in my day. It was much more just collaborative. Here is the setting, make your characters. There's like some admins and mods, but no one is running the thing you are just creating threads yourself um and and kind of just living in that very sort of low stakes broadly um well i'll I'll be honest with you it was an x-men play by post so we were in uh westchester new york um you know just living in westchester new york doing your thing um but (laughs) the the thing that i think is interesting about this question is um the idea that because because i don't think gethin is um suggesting that 
it has to be super in depth that it can just be, you know, a little catch up with each of your players in between sessions to say, Hey, what are you thinking? What's how, what is your character feeling right now? Um, what do you think they're likely to do in the next session so that you can be prepared for it? What I don't think, uh, is I don't think that that makes prep easier. I think that actually, uh, makes it, it puts a lot more work into the GM's hands. If you're going to include that stuff, even if it is good to know, um, it, it is a lot of extra work. The easiest time a GM can have is working out your muscles of like figuring out what you're going to do on the fly and just making it happen. Um, that's the easiest, least preppy way of doing it. Um, having said that, my great dream is um, to, to one day have a game where there are, you know, sessions happening with adventures, probably like, like a, an adventurer's guild or a mercenary company, and they've got their guild hall, right? And you have your little sort of West Marches style sessions where you go out and you play an adventure and you can come back in. But also having a play-by-post like forum base where everyone can just have their conversations and they're kind of happening at a nebulous point in the timeline, people are just talking because I do love having room for characters to debrief about things. I think that's something that gets skipped over a lot. It's, it's often um, the difference between a TV show that I love or don't love is, is whether the characters react to the things that have happened to them. Um, and, and I think that that idea it's my white whale. I'm going to do it one day <laughs> and it will be uh, coming largely from my, from my play by post roots. <laughs> This all makes me think that that really what it's about, right? I think what, what this gets to is, can we have depth to what the players are doing with their characters and have that have a way to effectively have that interaction between DM and player to establish more and more depth? And and so find a way to do that, right? And and one way is to kind of do these kinds of behind the scenes connections. And and it is interesting that we all think about play by post because play by post really does sort of lend itself to that sort of like back and forth of the GM and exploring things. And that you know, here's what I really want to do to interact with this NPC. But but at the end, I think it's that keep your eye on prize of just you want this sort of depth. And so the depth comes from understanding what your players are doing, are wanting to do with their characters. It's providing a, a really clear message that they can make change in the world and proving that to them across play. Um, and so for me, I like the thing I struggle with when I do things individually is that somehow I want to get some of that information to all the other players and I miss that the other players aren't there. So I, I don't really like to do the one-on-one. -on -one. I prefer to do like downtime at the table and just go as quickly as I can and say, all right, what are you doing for, you know, we've finished the, the, the cultist layer. What are you doing? And, and they might not be sure. And I say, well, you talked to me about how, you know, researching this thing in your backstory was important. Do you want to try to do that? Sure. And then we establish a downtime scene and go through it. You know, next person, I want to train that goblin that we rescued so that they can really adventure with us. Cool. Uh, what kind of training do you want to give them? And let's go through this, right? And then next person, you know, I want to pledge myself to the queen and, and become an emissary to the blah, blah, blah. Cool. All right. Let's, you know, and that kind of thing I, I find reinforces more because everybody is involved in it. But, but again, that's just my style and whatever works to create that depth, I think is, is where you, you go from just a fun session to some, you know, one of those memorable campaigns that, that you really feel good about is the more that you can get up into that above tier of play and, and anything mm. that'll get you there is <laughs> spot on.
Yeah, I agree. And I, I sort of, I agree and disagree, I think, with Dale, what you were saying before a little bit. Um, the one thing I do like to know, which absolutely helps my session prep, but it's because I'm a bit of an over-prepper, is especially when the party finish, like, the session on a long rest and the next session is like, all right, well, we're either going to go to the castle to confront the king or there is this one other thing we could go and investigate. I'm kind of like, all right, can you guys let that me know which one you want to do? Uh, because because yeah. I don't want to have to try and prep both. You know, there, there's wide prepping and deep prepping, as I kind of yeah. phrase it for myself, which is I can prep eight rooms. Can I prep eight rooms in one location so there's lots to discover there? Or can I prep four rooms in each location, but you might run past the the fourth room in, in one of those locations in a single session? I agree with that. I, I completely agree with that. But I will say that if you're someone who is just an expert at running on the fly, it's still easier to just run either decision on the fly. <laughs> sure, for sure. For, uh, in for the situation sure. that you're an expert at running things on the fly. I mean, the other thing you can do, which I've talked about before, is um, uh, speed bump sessions, as I call them, which is like, okay, you can go to the castle, you can go to this. I'm going to create a generic encounter that I can put in either location and that Mm. will kind of, you know, speed bump you so that I'll know where you're going the session after. Um, if the party wanted to talk about it at the table or something like that first. This sort Um, of stuff is why I never begrudge anyone for running a quantum ogre which yeah, is yeah, the yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 which is the way yes. that, that people who get mad at D&D online like to grouse about DMs who kind of put the same obstacle in their way no matter which way they went. And it's like, yeah, you know, uh, as long as the believability of the world isn't compromised, yes. your, your DM's a person too, right? They've got a life, <laughs> they've got a job, like, they just want to make a fun game for you. And if the most dramatic encounter they come up with uh, is able to work no matter what decision you make. Let him let him bring out the dramatic encounter. You know, quantum quantum ogre uh, uh, apologist. Uh, when I had that explained to me, what a quantum ogre was, because I'd never heard the term before, like a year <laughs> or two ago, I was like, "Do you mean a wandering monster, or d- don't you just mean session prep? Like, doesn't everybody do that? Because sure, the castle or the graveyard or whatever, that those might be different locations." But what happens on the way there can be something that you kind of, you know, have in, in, in either place, you know, because you're right, James. Um, that being said, I think I agree with you, Dale, that sometimes those in-between session discussions can add to GM prep when players are like coming and asking for things. They're like, oh, it would be really great if in the next session X, Y, Z thing happened. And I want, it, it's a bit of a a Faustian pact that I make with my players because I want that. I want them to be that level of engaged in the game. But sometimes I get those big, long messages and I am a bit like, oh, okay, um, yeah. now I've got to think about this and for, it's like, it's, for a it's few hours. It's so good when you do have a game where everyone is just like thinking about it <laughs> all the time after they've finished playing. Like that is so exciting and thrilling and, you know, everyone wants to play again tomorrow. Like that's so fun and it's so good when it happens. But having said that, I'm also the kind of DM who I have all these plans. I'm like, all right, I'll, after the session, I'll message you about blah, blah, blah. I'll figure out what this says, all these things. And then I go home and I lie down on the couch and I don't do anything. And then the next thing I know, a week has passed and the session is four hours away and I've done nothing and I haven't reviewed my notes and my handwritten notes. Mm-hmm are useless to me. So <laughs> it's it's just kind of, you know, it, there's there's the ideal version of what I think would be great. <laughs> there's the reality. 
You just look down at your note, you're like, Duck Swain, what the hell? Is, what, is that what that even says? Too real. <laughs> Um, uh, that being said, the, 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 you know, kind of turn back that where, where between session conversations have, have really helped me recently, particularly is when I've had a player going through something like a grim hollow transformation. Uh, one of my players was recently doing the aberrant horror transformation. And for me personally, thematically, it's like, once you go down that road, that that's it like there, there's no magic in the world that can reverse that except for maybe a wish spell you know and and those are not common uh in in a dark fantasy setting because that's the 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 story is yes you may have hope that this will come back some at some point but it won't you know like you you're you're, you're on a tragic path that's only going to end in more tragedy but that might not might not be what my player has in mind when they um, are going down that road. And so checking in with the player and being like, okay, so I just want to understand where your headspace is around this transformation and where you want this story to go so that I can facilitate that because I want to make sure what I have in mind and what you have in mind is the same. You know, I don't want you to be disappointed when your character is reduced to a gibbering mouther because <laughs> that's the, the formation of your transformation if you're hoping that, no, no, there'll be a way to cure it. On the flip side, I don't want to cure it if you or, or offer you a way to cure it if you feel like that's a cop-out and you can't wait to become a gibbering mouther or whatever, you know? Um, so just getting on the same page, pardon me, with your players as to, you know, where certain things are at. Because often how they role play it at the table might not be what they've actually got in their mind, uh, so to speak. Yeah, maybe not yeah. play between sessions, but little check-ins. Check-ins, yeah. Hello. I mean, I love sending doing? surveys out, right? To, to just say, like, how are you digging this? What do you like? What, what, you know, is it too much combat? Is it too little? Is your character getting to do what they want to do? Do you feel like you have agency in the world? Could you use more or less? You know, just it can be whatever you're comfortable with. It can either be text boxes or just, you know, rate me one to five on these, you know, rate the campaign one to five on those things. That's a really nice way to also help, help folks think about it. Sometimes folks don't even know. They're like, yeah, I would like to relate with the world more, but I don't, I don't know what my character wants. That's okay, too. Someone in the chat said, boys only want one thing. It's disgusting to become a gibbering mouther. I thought that was funny. Um, I want to be a flump, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe that should be the, 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 the <laughs> horrifying, like, uh, uh, etheric, aberrant transformation. You're growing spikes. You're growing tentacles. Everything's just you know, absolutely going everywhere for six months in session time, in world time, and then it just all fulminates at the end and just... It's the worst curse of all, being very gassy. <laughs> <laughs> That's realistic like that right <laughs> And then you knock them prone. <laughs> no! <laughs> you are stuck prone forever. That's that's the end of a uh, Black Mirror episode right there. Speaking of the end of things, this is the end of the Eldritch Lorecast this week because we are out of time. And just like Black Mirror, remember, it could happen to you. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. My name's been Ben Byrne here uh, with James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, Teos Abadia. Teos, where can folks find you uh, if they want to hear more of your wisdom? Uh, you should just follow Sean Merwin, but you can find me at alphastream.org. Thank right. you for having um, me on. 
No, our pleasure. Uh, thank you for jumping in last minute. Uh, you can find us on YouTube at Ghostfire Podcast. I don't know why I'm doing this bit now. I feel like I kind of closed it out, but why not? We're here now. Uh, like, subscribe, all that stuff really helps uh, get us out to more listeners. Uh, we had a couple of first-time chatters in the Twitch chat this week. Welcome if uh, any of you are catching the show for the first time. Uh, we're going to be back next week at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Tuesday, Australian Eastern Standard Time. The 3 p.m. and the 6 p.m. in the U.S. is on the Monday. I need to remind myself to say that bit, and we're going to go now. All right, goodbye. It's very important. Very important. Must get that bit in. And that's the end of the episode. So we're just going to wait till Dante takes us. I'm just answering questions about my my X-Men play-by post in the chat. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. That's a YouTube video in the making.